to mind when you hear Syracuse? I mean, the, the machine was so well oiled at that point. We were so fine-tuned and it meant everything to not make a mistake. We sound like a freight train just coming out of nowhere. Nothing was going to stop us. And that was just five people um, in the band and it sounded good. You finish a show like that and you're just, you feel like you survived something. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to get through this thing called life. Electric word, life that means forever, and that's a mighty long time. But I'm here to tell you, there's something else. The afterword. A world of never-ending happiness. You can always see the sun, day or night. So when you call out that shit, you know what it is, you know the one. Doctor, everything will be all right. Hello, welcome back to the official Prince podcast. I'm your host, Andrea Swenson. I'm a music journalist in Prince's hometown of Minneapolis, and I'm so excited to share the conversations I've been having lately with the revolution. Dr. Fink, Wendy Melvoin, Brownmark, Lisa Coleman, and Bobby Z. In this two-part series, we're going to ride along with the band and some of their friends and colleagues as they take us on the Purple Rain Tour, the monumental, life-changing, red-hot tour that sold 1.7 million tickets and rolled out at the moment that Prince became a household name. In addition to hearing stories from the people who were working closely with Prince in this period, you're also going to hear the newly remixed and remastered audio of their historic Purple Rain Tour performance at the Carrier Dome in Syracuse, New York, which is available on vinyl, CD, and as a Blu-ray video on June 3rd. It's a show that was beamed to millions across Europe in the first satellite broadcast of its kind. Yes, in addition to all the other ways Prince was a trailblazing musician, he was one of the first to ever bounce his guitar playing off a satellite in space. You'll hear about how that came together, what it meant for Prince at this point in his career, and what it's been like for the revolution to go back and watch this show again. Broadcasting from Paisley Park, this is the story of Prince and the Revolution live, produced by the Prince Estate and distributed by Sony Music Entertainment. Come on, baby. Let's get yeah. I'm coming to get you, honey.
The year was 1984. Prince's debut film was getting ready to open in theaters that July. And the soundtrack's first single, When Doves Cry, was released that May and quickly climbed the charts, becoming Prince's first number one hit on the Billboard Hot 100 on July 7th. One person who was closely involved with Prince's career at this point was Bob Cavallo, the legendary manager whose firm Cavallo, Ruffalo, and Farnoli represented Prince from 1979 to 1989. This is me, Bob Cavallo, manager for about 10 years of Prince. Bob still vividly recalls learning that Prince had a vision to make a movie. He was about to sign Prince to a new five-year management contract, and his partner Steve Farnoli called him to tell him Prince's terms. He called me, he said, Bobby, you're not going to believe this. I said, what? He said, the kid said he'll sign with you, but you have to get him a motion picture. And it can't be, quote, it can't be some jeweler or dope dealer's money. It has to come from a major studio, and his name has to be above the title as in Prince in his first motion picture. Warner Brothers presents Prince in his first. And I kind of laughed and said, well, I'm going to give it my best shot. Bob did help to secure the deal and find a screenwriter for the film, eventually landing on director Albert Mignoli. And he was there for the entire production and early screen tests of Purple Rain. Well, at one of the first screenings, Warner Brothers was convinced, the president of Warner Pictures was convinced that I had put a Prince fan club in and somehow got all the tickets for the screening. So they voted the highest numbers that they'd ever seen. He said, you can't do this. This is the film business. They really loved the movie. The kids loved the movie. Warner set up another advanced screening in Denver. But this time they didn't tell Bob where it was going to be, just in case he was somehow engineering all this fan excitement. When we arrived in the limo, the guy comes running up, one of the Warner guys, and says, we got to do something. There's going to be a riot if we don't put on a second show. There's so many people for the one show that they had to do three shows to satisfy the owner, frightened that his seats were going to get torn up and everything. By the day of the premiere at Grauman's Chinese Theater in Hollywood, the anticipation about Purple Rain had reached a fever pitch. MTV was even on-site at the theater to host a live broadcast from the red carpet and the after party. Boy, that goes way back. This is Mark Brown, who Prince renamed Brown Mark. I remember, I didn't think it was going to do that well. That's a clear memory. I, um, I was pretty shocked at how much press it was getting. And um, they start talking about red carpet. and We're going to get out of limos and stuff. And I was like, what? Because I just didn't realize the level of success that we had achieved up to that point. But, you know, wow, what a shock to my system when I pulled up and got out of the car. For Los Angeles natives Lisa Coleman and Wendy Melvoin, it was surreal to attend the event at such a familiar local landmark. 
That was so weird for me because I went to high school two blocks away and I used to walk by it all the time to get the bus and walking around Hollywood Boulevard and everything. And so it was like kind of an extra thrill to be pulling up in a limo in front of the Chinese theater yeah. <laughs> and stepping out. It was like, ha ha, it was fun. That was, that was a trip. I remember walking through the front. I remember seeing Ann Wilson from Heart. That's cool. who I remember. And uh, Little Richard and Pee Wee Herman. <laughs> I saw Paul Rubens. For Bobby Z and Matt Dr. Fink, they suddenly felt a long way from their scrappy roots on the club scene in Minneapolis. Here's Bobby. Growing up, you see all these stars from the 40s and 50s putting their hands in cement. And you're a million miles away in Minneapolis, and all of a sudden you're transported in real time, sitting next to Prince, uh, my wife on the right, Prince and Apollonia to the left, and he's elbowing me during the film, and it's a real moment. Actually, we sent him flowers that day saying, welcome to superstardom. We accomplished quite a bit from 1977 Minneapolis. Yeah, the, the one line I, of course, have in the film, I thought, well, it's kind of cute. I don't know if this is going to get a laugh. At the premiere, the, the audience roared at that line, and I was totally in shock by that. A star is born. <laughs> yeah, I was like, whoa. Rain was a box office smash, and its success propelled the soundtrack into the number one spot on the Billboard 200, where it stayed for an incredible 24 weeks. When Dove's Cry remained at number one for five weeks and was followed up with Prince's second number one hit, Let's Go Crazy, with the top film, the top album, and the top song in the U.S., it was time for Prince and his team to channel the success of this movie into a forward-thinking live show. It was a little stressful based on really where Prince's career was. There was a lot of pressure on all of us to deliver. This is Roy Bennett, Prince's longtime production and lighting designer. That was the beginning of trying to seriously push the envelope all the time. For that time, it was a pretty technically complicated show. And it was also kind of the beginning of, well, second stage of getting more into a theatrical type of stuff with Prince and as far as the performance goes. Because it was a lot of hydraulics and stuff uh, that were involved in the staging. The design of the show was to create uh, a, uh, a world that could constantly shift and change. Whether it started off as a flat stage, then it lifted up, and then there's the staircase and the walkway. It was kind of like a, 
the next elevation of the previous tours. Just like in his music, Prince had an endless stream of ideas for how to create an immersive Purple Rain show. From climbing into a fiberglass tub, to recreate the scene from the When Doves Cry video, to dropping a cascade of flowers onto the stage to replicate the design of the album art. We dump flowers on the audience every night, silk flowers, but um, the first one in Detroit, we, we dropped silk flowers and carnations, real ones. It was amazing and it smelled unbelievable. We turned the uh, arena into a, like a florist in the first five minutes of the show. And it was Roy who assumed the role of God to respond to Prince's cues with dramatic stage lighting during the song God. was negative. What are you looking at? He just said, look, I just want to have this moment where I talk to God and, and I want the lights to respond back to me as if they were talking back to me. So, it's just <laughs> so, so he would say words and then the lights would flash a little bit. <laughs> I don't know what they were saying. Well, I would make it up. <laughs> My head was. They should have credited that in the program and playing the part of God, Roy. <laughs> part of God. <laughs> Those conversations got long sometimes too. Started off short, and then as, as the tour went on, they got kind of long. <laughs> <laughs> What's the difference between life and death? God. It took dozens of crew members and several weeks to stage the Purple Rain Tour. Production rehearsals were held at several different arenas in the Twin Cities, including the Minneapolis Auditorium, the St. Paul Civic Center, and the Met Center, sending the revolution on a mini-tour of local arenas. Long, long days. Well, uh, first, the rehearsals were in Eden Prairie on Washington Avenue in that building. And rehearse, 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 rehearse. You finally get to see the set. You know, it, it's talked about. You look, there's drawings. He's looking at it. Roy's there every day. 
looking at cues, looking what he's going to do. But when we first got it, St. Paul Civic Center, I think, it it was more spread out. Mm. And Prince, we did some songs, and, you know, he talked to Roy, and he said, it's too spread out. I want all that energy, you know, like when you saw the four Beatles together. So now when you look at it, when you look at the film, we're very tight together. All six people, and it's just there they are. And that was a stroke of genius. And that was kind of exciting because it was different. You know, we were just in the warehouse doing rehearsals and you know, getting burgers. You know, it's funny. I think I might be confusing the amount of time we rehearsed for Purple Rain than when we did for, like, the parade tour because things loosened up a bit in rehearsals during parade and all of our rehearsals then. They weren't so crazy. Yeah, it was different. Purple Rain was different. High octane. Wendy. Yes, Lisa. Is the water warm enough? Yes, Lisa. Shall we begin? Yes, Lisa. way we rehearsed uh, building up to it. It was actually like doing a concert every night. We had been rehearsing that since 83. Goodness, I mean, we knew it. I knew Purple Rain, I could go, I'd fall asleep and probably play it, you know. That's how well we knew the whole set. What is it Malcolm Gladwell said, if you can do something for 10,000 hours and you're an expert at it? I mean, you must have easily passed that. We were experts, that's for sure. I know me, I didn't have to think about playing anymore. I mean, the machine was so well-oiled at that point, though, that, you know, you it was very ingrained. I don't like to call it autopilot, but in a sense, your brain has that show embedded in it so so well that it's almost effortless, really, to perform at that point because you, you've worked on it so hard. Yeah, I think that's one of the main reasons Prince had us rehearse so uh, diligently. I mean, it's like... We would jam on a section of a song for an hour. I mean, it was just, you know, until it was second nature. We didn't even have to think about it. So he was a very good band leader, I thought, and um, a perfectionist, definitely. Bobby Z distinctly remembers one of the biggest challenges of putting together the Purple Rain tour show. He had to figure out how to recreate Prince's groundbreaking use of the Lynn drum machine in the live setting. When I sat down with Bobby for our interview, we just happened to record in the control room of Studio A at Paisley Park, where the Lynn was on display just a few feet away. <sighs> wow. The whole Bobby Z on with electric drums is a, is a whole world unto itself, isn't it? Um, the LM1, the Lynn M1. We're looking at a beauty right over there. We are in Studio A and... I can't help but envision 
him walking right through that door. You look at that door and you're still kind of looking around. And this was his home. We're in a beautiful space with wood, Westlake audio speakers, and SSL classic board. The candles are lit. The carpeting's low. We're we're in we're in Princeton, right? What do you remember about putting your drum setup together for the tour? That's an interesting story because, you know, the drums on the record of that are kind of uh, what we used to call trick photography. And um, he could play the Lin with his fingers in real time and do fills, which anybody that's worked with the thing will tell you that that was his genius. And so when it came to Darling Nikki, it was kind of how, how are we going to pull this off? So we finally got to rehearsal, a Purple Rain show, and... It was time for Darling Nikki, and he goes, okay, Darling Nikki, and he counts it off, and I'm like, uh, we can play it, but, you know, we got to figure out how to really make this electronically work. Right. He goes, okay, yeah, till 10 o'clock tomorrow morning. <laughs> Next. <laughs> Great. And that's when I took the drum machine home, and we became friends, and I spent the night arguing with it, and Steve Farnoli gave me some great advice. He goes, you know... It's here. You might as well learn how to use it. And that was good advice. I knew a girl named Nikki. I guess you could say she was a sex fiend. I met her in a hotel lobby, masturbating with a magazine. She said, how'd you like to waste some time? And I could not resist when I saw little Nikki grind. Don Batts the little microphones you use in acoustic guitars. And he put those inside the drums, and then he built an interface. The beautiful thing about the LM1, the Lin one, is that it had all these outs. The snare went out, the kick went out, everything went out. So he could build an interface that could take that pulse and send it back to the microphone on the snare drum or in the tom, hidden in the drum. By striking the drum, you trigger the pulse of the sound. Uh. Now, by the time we got to Parade, things were sophisticated. Purple Rain was like driving a car held together with glue. Sometimes it had a mind of its own, and um, it would primarily double trigger, which was you start out as a drummer and you become the best acoustic drummer you can possibly be. But now your nightmare is double triggered electronic snare drums. A little bit different wow. than what Buddy Rich had to worry about. <laughs> <laughs> The Purple Rain Tour opened in November 1984 with seven back-to-back -back shows at the Joe Louis Arena in Detroit, a city that had supported Prince since the beginning. From the very first night, the band could tell that there had been a shift in their relationship with the public. I knew, like, that first show we did, with the amount of fans that were outside of the hotel, wait around. And wait, like, waiting around, like, you'd walk out of the elevator and there'd be a group of people waiting for you to get out of the elevator. That was that Detroit show. And I was like, wow, this is going to be 
a fucking insane tour. Yeah, that was crazy. Detroit's nuts. They, they're prints. They're purple crazy. I just remember going to the mall. We were out there in uh, Southfield. They had to run me out. I got mobbed. And I was running as fast as I could to get out of there. I actually, uh, I think it was a candy store. And I ran in there. That was a crazy time period. Because we were at the height of success and everybody knew who we were. I mean, I, I felt like a prisoner. I couldn't go anywhere. I'd step outside my hotel room. I had to have security. And, uh, that was like, wow. Okay. This is different. I never had a bodyguard assigned to me before. Now I had a bodyguard because it was unsafe. Everything was different. I mean, we had done really well live and had good crowds and stuff, but the Purple Rain Tour was a whole other level, and we saw different kinds of people coming to the shows, like that we, you know, it was just more mainstream. And then it's just like, whoosh, they know certain songs, you know, from the film and, and things like that. And it was, I don't know, you could just tell that these people are really into the film. I don't know if you remember this, but you'd sometimes open up the elevator or you'd walk into a hotel or somewhere like that and you'd look to see who looked like you, what character <laughs> was you. And a lot of times you'd go into these hotels and there'd be a lot of people that looked like Vanity or Apollonia 6, like the girls would be wearing like teddies. And then you'd see some girls and you're like, definitely, those are some Wendy and Lisa fans right there. And there was always Prince lookalikes. There was always guys that were dressed like, tried to look like Prince. It was exciting, you know, because we had been gigging and like it was a, it was a real like, you know, got better and better every time. And then this was just the next thing. And it was like, oh, my God, it, it's happening. Did you feel like you were in character at times? Sure. Yeah. Yeah. We were all playing the part of the band in the movie. <laughs> you know, I'm Lisa. That became who we are today for some people. That dressing room scene is like who we are today. When they meet Wendy, they're there. When they meet Lisa, they're, you know, they're there. They're transported back to that moment where they get to know us. The newfound visibility that the band was experiencing was multiplied tenfold for Prince. Eric Leeds, who played saxophone for Prince for many years and whose brother, Alan Leeds, was Prince's tour manager, remembers flying down to North Carolina to check out the Purple Rain tour for the first time. The sound that came out of that arena was unlike anything I'd ever in my life heard. And there were two things that went through my mind. Um, first was that, okay, now I get it. This must have been what it must have been like to have been at a Beatles concert. The next thing was, it was very disconcerting. And if you watch that show, 
you may not get really get it from like even a DVD or video of it. But if you were in the crowd of that show during the entire performance, Prince could say something, just an offhanded comment or make a, gest a gesticulation or movement and the crowd would go nuts. Can you see me? Can you hear me? Dig, if you will, the picture. I've seen James Brown. I've seen Earth, Wind & Fire, but said nothing like this. This reaction from the crowd at those concerts was not just about music. It was about something else. Eric Leeds would eventually join the Purple Rain Tour as a guest soloist, foreshadowing the changes that were going to happen to Prince's live band. We'll hear more from Eric, Roy Bennett, Bob Cavallo, longtime Prince associate Craig Rice, and The Revolution, coming up next on the story of Prince and The Revolution Live. Hey, the people went nuts, let's face it. It was very successful, but it was also disappointment because what you're doing, what you're promoting, is what he did instead of go around the world like he was supposed to. This tour is ending. I'm ending it. Much to the chagrin of just about every business person involved in his career. The story of Prince and the Revolution Live is produced by the Prince Estate and distributed by Sony Music Entertainment. This story was written and co-produced by me, Andrea Swenson. Anna Weggel is our producer, and Corey Schreppel is our technical director. Thanks also to Trevor Guy, Zach Hockapol, Michael Howe, and Dwayne Tudal. Order your copy of Prince and the Revolution Live on vinyl, CD, and Blu-ray at prince.com. And if you haven't subscribed yet, search for the official Prince podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or your favorite platform. Because 